0: So good to be with you guys on this long weekend. You're here because you're here against all the odds. You know, you've survived the pandemic, you've survived school holidays, presumably, or almost halfway through. A long weekend, and most importantly, daylight savings. So, in 32 minutes from now, I invite everyone to turn and look at those doors. At 12 p.m., and we'll see if we've got any people with uh, clocks that are that are out. Thanks for joining us online, to all our folks online as well. Um, I, I'm imagining, you know, where people are watching us from uh, this morning. We are very jealous, so um, not too many brags online, please. Uh, if you're new and joining us today for the first time, or maybe you're watching the live stream for the first time, uh, we're coming to the end of a wonderful series we've been doing in. Paul's letter to the Colossians and we actually only have two more messages after this one to go and today we're looking at the topic of mission. So if you have your Bibles, open them up to Colossians chapter 4. I'm going to read from verse 2 through to verse 6 and then we're going to invite God to help us this morning. This is God's word to us. This morning, Colossians chapter 4, verse 2. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. That I ought to make it clear, which is how I ought always to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Would you pray with me? Lord God Almighty, as we come before your throne this morning, as your people, we are so thankful that our hope for change does not ultimately rest with us. Thank you, Lord God, for your grace. Thank you, Lord God, for the grace that you have shown us in the Lord Jesus Christ who receives us simply through faith and not because of any good thing in us. Thank you, Lord, that there's a work begun in each and every person who has called upon you in faith that you will bring to completion in that last day. And so we invite you, Lord, by your Holy Spirit, whether we be listening online from the beaches or sitting here this morning, we invite you, Lord. Come, Holy Spirit, change us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, friends, I wanted to begin with some statistics this morning. Uh, from a recent poll based on the Australian census that happened in 2016... According to this recent polling, only 7% of Australians describe themselves as actively practising the Christian faith. Now, for clarification, 7% is across all denominations, Catholic, Orthodox, Pentecostal, Protestant. That's everyone together. More, the number of Australians who describe themselves as non-religious is growing. In 1911, that number was 0.4%. In 2016, that number is 46%. Australia, our nation, is becoming an increasingly post-Christian society. And there's an antagonism towards some of our Christian values. And if you're a follower of the Lord Jesus, you feel it. But here's the thing. The result of this is that it's so easy to feel overwhelmed and discouraged about the task of evangelism in our city. You know, if we assume that all of those 7% of people I've talked about before are Christians, are following the Lord Jesus, that means that 93% of people in our city are facing the judgment of God alone without Christ. In a city such as ours in Sydney, that means 500, or oh, 5,022,000 people out of 5,400,000 people who don't know Christ. If you take it a bit more narrow to the Hornsby Shire, that means 133,000 out of 142,000 people in our neighbourhood, the Hornsby Shire. Now, if you're feeling discouraged as you consider the rising secularism in our country and the increasing number of people who don't know Christ, I believe this morning God is out to encourage you. You see, God wants us to see some of the implications of the supremacy of Christ in all things upon mission. Just by of context, if you're new to this series... Uh, The letter to Colossae was written by Paul. And Colossae was a new church planted by a man called Epaphras who had answered the call of Christ and returned to his hometown to preach the gospel. And as he preached the gospel, people came to faith and this very eclectic group of new believers was formed. But Paul, in prison, had heard a report that a new heresy was threatening to take root in this fledgling community. And this teaching had mixed local pagan beliefs with local Jewish beliefs with the Bible, and it was teaching basically that Jesus isn't enough. And so Paul had been helping these Colossians to see that Christ is absolutely everything you could possibly need. He's your maker, sustainer, redeemer. He's God himself who sustains everything in the universe. Christ is supreme over all things and all people everywhere. More, Paul wants them to see that this Christ who reigns supreme has given them new spiritual lives. Paul puts it this way in Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. He says, If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. If you've been given new spiritual life through the cross, if you've been joined to Christ, says Paul, your life is to be oriented around the things of God. The focus of your life is meant to be the pursuit of the kingdom of God, the things that matter to Christ. And so Paul writes in Colossians chapter 3, verse 17. He says, "And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him." In the name of the Lord Jesus. We often use that as a kind of Christian catchphrase for prayers, but it really means on behalf of the Lord Jesus. All of our actions, our words, are meant to be in service of our new king who rules from above and dwells in our hearts through faith. And so Paul then moves to unpack the implications of the supremacy of Christ for a variety of different areas in the Christian community. The Jesus community is meant to be knit together in love. The community is meant to be marked by thankfulness. Marriages are to be are to reflect Christ in the church. Children are to be obedient. Parents are not to provoke their children to anger. Workers and bosses are both together meant to work as though they're working for the Lord. But you might be tempted to believe after listening to this list that Paul is only concerned for events that occur within the community in Colossae. That he's only concerned with unity. That he's only concerned with marriages or families or workplaces. But if you're tempted to believe that, you're forgetting who Paul is. Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles. His sole passion in life was the proclamation of the lordship of Christ to the whole world. And so Paul has one final implication of the supremacy of Christ that he wants to pause upon. He wants us to see that the supremacy of Christ has implications that go beyond the Christian community into the lives of those who don't know Christ. If you're taking notes this morning, uh, I've entitled this message, The Supremacy of Christ in Mission. And I've got two points this morning, really two encouragements from Paul for us on mission, written to the Colossians about mission. But really one hope for us this morning, and that is that the supremacy of Christ in all things would lead us to embrace Christ's mission to seek and save the lost. The supremacy of Christ in all things would lead us to embrace Christ's mission as our own and that mission to seek and save those who are lost. So two encouragements. Encouragement number one, just to begin, is to be steadfast in prayer. You know, this week, as I've been thinking about this message and even before this week, I've been kind of contemplating, thinking about a question. And that is, how important do I believe prayer is to the forward progress of God's mission. More than that, I've been thinking about what does my prayer life suggest about how important I believe prayer to be to God's mission of the forward progress of the gospel. You see, because if Christ is really supreme above all things, Prayer is absolutely vital. You know, I didn't know what the passage was going to be on this week that I was going to be preaching on, and I actually had a bit of a laugh when I read it for the first time and saw the prominence of prayer in this morning's text, and that is because prayer is actually something I felt really convicted about, prayerlessness in my life recently. I've been sharing it with the people in my group. I've been sharing it with the guys on the team, and I thought to myself, God is clearly at work to encourage me and encourage us all today about prayer and its importance in mission. And so Paul has real, really two aspects of prayer that he wants to encourage these Colossians in this morning and therefore to encourage us in as well. And first of all, It's really to encourage them about the qualities of prayer. And he has three qualities that he wants to put his finger on. And we see these in verse 2 of our passage. Paul says this He says, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. You see, Paul lists three qualities that are meant to mark our prayers on mission. And the first is, To continue steadfastly in prayer. The word here for prayer is actually about petitions, specific requests to God. And Paul is saying he wants them to persist in it. He wants them to be busily engaged in it. He wants them to busy themselves with it. He wants them to be devoted to it, to be devoted to prayer. See, according to Paul, prayer is meant to be a way of life, it's meant to be something we're constantly engaged in. But here's the thing, that's not easy. You see, our culture values visible results. It values productivity and efficiency. And so prayer seems like, if we're really honest, often wasting time. You know, we can fall into thinking about prayer as something for those that are kind of pious and super spiritual types, or those that are just out of touch. Or even more to begin to think, you know, that's something I'll get to when I have more time. And yet, the time to pray never seems to come. More than that, it's so easy just to give up on prayer. You know, we have this cultural assumption that if something doesn't feel right to me personally, if it feels difficult or uncomfortable, then then it's probably not for me. Might be for you or the coyotes of the world if you're listening in, brother. But not for me. And yet Paul implores the Colossians to be steadfast in prayer. His point is prayer requires a real struggle. It requires a fight of faith. Paul puts it this way in Romans chapter 15, verse 30. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. Strive together. Paul says, join in the fight with me. It's a call by Paul to Fight alongside him in the battle for the faith via prayer. Tim Keller, in his book, uh, On Prayer, excellent book, writes it this way. He says, prayer is always hard work and often agony. We sometimes have to wrestle even in order to pray. When those hours of the day come in which we should be having our prayer sessions with God... It often appears as though everything has entered into a conspiracy to prevent it. We often wrestle in prayer just to concentrate. Your thoughts flit back and forth between God and the many pressing duties that, which await you. While God can and will grant times of peace and tranquility, no Christian outgrows the need to struggle and persevere in prayer. It's so true. Our culture says, if it's not easy, it's probably not for you. And yet, the truth is, we're called to struggle and strive together in prayer. And yet, prayer is a struggle in which it's easy to be disheartened and discouraged. You know, you're watching a family member continue to reject Christ with no visible change. Your friends from school who don't know Christ have lives that seem to be going better than yours and you can begin to believe there's no way they'll be interested in christ you watch wider society moving further and further from christian values with more antagonism towards those that follow and the fruit is you feel yourself becoming discouraged and even stop praying It's because of that temptation that we've made these C4 bookmarks for all of us that have space for four names of people that you're praying for in your life. C4, if you're listening and unfamiliar, stands for four steps towards sharing Christ with someone that all start with C. And at the bottom, I've placed a verse from Luke 18, verse 1, where it says of Jesus, and he told them a parable that they might always pray and never lose heart. You see, both the Apostle Paul and the Lord Jesus know that prayer is something that we can be discouraged in, that we can lose heart in. And so Paul says, continue steadfastly. But not just to be steadfast in prayer, that's the first quality, but to be watchful in it as well. And Paul says it just like this in verse 2, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it. That word means literally to stay awake, to be in constant readiness, to be on alert, to be wide awake about prayer. What does that actually mean though? Like, What does it mean? Don't fall asleep while praying? I mean, I'm sure all of us here at various times have fallen asleep while praying. We had a classic instance in our group the other day. If my group members are listening in, you will laugh where someone fell into a deep sleep on Zoom uh, during prayer time, and we all together said, Wake up! Went insert name there. (laughs) And then they came awake, it was like watching The Wiggles. Um, Paul is actually alluding here to Jesus. Uh, Especially Jesus when he asks his disciples to pray in the Garden of Gethsemane. Mark writes the following of Jesus in Mark chapter 14, verse 38. Jesus said, Watch, it's the same word, and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. See, Jesus is just about to be betrayed and crucified. His disciples are about to be thrown into chaos. You know, literally moments later, A band of soldiers will come to arrest Jesus and these disciples will flee for their lives. And they had no idea the immense pressure they were about to be under. They had no idea about the despair they were just about to be tempted to feel. They had no idea the pressure they would feel to betray the Lord Jesus. They just simply had no idea. And here's the thing. Because they couldn't see the moment they were in, they found themselves tired, drowsy, and they fell asleep. What I've been thinking about this week as I was preparing this message for you guys is how would these disciples have acted differently if they could rightly see what was just about to happen? You know, if they just had some sort of, I don't know, drone footage and they could see Judas with this band of soldiers literally walking up the hill to arrest the Lord Jesus as they were meant to be praying. What if they could just see it? What if they just knew what was about to happen to Jesus and how seemingly all of the people were just about to turn on them? I tell you what, they would have been on their hands and knees crying out for mercy. They would have been praying, help us, Lord, to be faithful to the end. Don't let us abandon and betray this king. They'd be watchful. Say, hey, guys, they're not here yet. We've got a few more moments. Let's pray and ask the Lord to strengthen us some more. And here's what I've been thinking about in light of that. How would our prayers be different? if we could see the moment we're in. If we could see that there's a spiritual battle with an enemy that seeks to destroy our brothers and sisters in Christ. If we could see there's a spiritual battle where the enemy seeks to withhold the gospel from our neighbours and blind us to their plight. If we could see that Christ is enthroned on high and the end of the age draws ever increasingly near and yet we have access before that throne because of the blood of the Lord Jesus. If we could see that the vast majority of those in our community face the wrath of God alone and without Christ and are completely oblivious to the judgment that awaits them. I'll tell you what, friends, if I could see that more clearly, I'd be less consumed with my own little wants and troubles and distractions that pull me away from prayer. And I'd spend more time pleading for those who don't know Christ. You see, Paul wants them not just to be steadfast in prayer, but to be watchful as well. To be alert to the moment that we're in. Lastly, not just steadfast, not just watchful, but lastly, the third quality that Paul wants for these Colossians in their prayers is with thanksgiving. You know, for the last few weeks as a church, we've been talking about thanksgiving, actually. And we've been talking about that to know the Lord Jesus Christ is to know the heart of God is so good. And it's to know that whatever the Lord and His sovereignty chooses to do is always an expression of his wonderful goodness towards his people. You see, thankfulness, it's an expression of faith. Thankfulness chooses to say, God is good, just like he says. And this knowledge leads to trusting surrender to his will and thanksgiving for however he chooses to respond to our prayers. See, Paul lists three qualities that were meant to mark his people's prayers on mission, that they were steadfast, watchful, and with thanksgiving. But not just that, the second aspect of Paul's teaching to them on prayer is about the content of their prayers. And Paul really has two specific requests for their prayers, two prayer points. And we see them in verses 3 and 4. Firstly, in verse 3, Paul says, At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison. His first prayer point is for an opportunity to declare Christ. You see, normally when we think of an open door, we think of an easy opportunity. You know, I applied for the job, and God just opened the door. It's really Christianese for I applied for a job, and I got a job, really, is what we mean. And Paul is likely, in this context, in prison in Rome where he's writing this letter. He's likely, at this time, under house arrest where he's chained to a Roman soldier, a guard, at all times. Now, knowing that, I would kind of expect that Paul would pray for an opportunity to change his situation. That he'd ask for an open door... Out of prison. But it's not what he says. Paul says, pray for an open door for the word, that I might declare the mystery of Christ. Paul says, not change my situation, but pray that I'd be able to preach Christ to people. See, Paul had such an amazing. Confidence in the power of the gospel. You know, the way he puts it is so interesting. Open a door for the word, open a door for the gospel message. It's like he sees the gospel message is alive and moving and growing. It kind of reminds me of uh, when I was growing up, we had a dog called Candy. She was a cross border colleague across Labrador crazy dog, full of energy, and you'd be outside playing with Candy, patting her, whatever, and then came the challenge of trying to get back inside through our sliding door without her coming in and wrecking the house. And so what you'd do is you'd try to grab her by the collar and you'd just have the sliding door open and you'd push her out and you'd sort of close it a bit on your arm and then she'd be rushing back and then you'd get your leg and you'd try to push her away and slam the door in the little moment of time that you had in between without slamming the door on your foot. Such was her excitement to get inside, and that 's kind of the picture of how Paul sees the gospel he 's praying just for an opening so that the gospel can be released into the lives of these people, you know, just like Paul sees it and says in Colossians chapter one verse five he says this he says because of The word of the truth of the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Paul sees the gospel as being alive and growing all around the world and right there in this little community as well. He saw the gospel as this message of power, transforming, growing, and bearing fruit. And he's saying, guys, I want you just to pray for an opportunity to unleash it. And here's the wonderful thing, that God answered the Colossians' prayers. You know, if we're right in thinking that Paul is in prison in Rome, we read the following right at the end of the book of Acts, in Acts 28, verse 30. Luke writes, And he lived there, that's in Rome, two whole years at his own expense. And welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. How good's that? The beautiful truth is that because the Lord Jesus is reigning on the throne and hears our prayers, the Colossians were able to struggle together with Paul in Rome such that his ministry became their ministry through their prayers. Here's a question I want you guys to think about this morning. When was the last time you prayed for an opportunity to share the word? You know, a few weeks back, I felt a bit convicted about this. I hadn't really been praying that way. And so I prayed for some of the people on uh, my list, on my little prayer card Bookmark the C4 bookmark that you guys will have. I just prayed, Lord, give me an opportunity to proclaim Christ. And then, literally a week later, I got a phone call from one of my friends uh, on my card, and uh, he called me in tears. Um, He's crying because he and his wife had had recently lost a child, and they were just feeling, um, rightly, devastated. And As he was sharing, I was just reminded what I've been praying for, and I just thought, I've just got to find a way to encourage my friend about Jesus. And um, so I just felt the Lord just bringing to memory um, Isaiah 53 that talks about Jesus being a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And so I just shared with my friend and said, look, you know, I really want to pray for you because I believe Jesus is not someone who's distant from our sufferings, but he's a man of sorrows, the Bible says, acquainted with grief. He was familiar with much suffering in his life and therefore he's a wonderful person to come to in prayer and talk to about the things that you're going through. And this friend said to me, do you know what, Brendan, that's so beautiful and so meaningful to think that you would pray for my wife and I and this time we're going through where we come from. That is considered a really high honor that you'd pray. Can I ask you, would you record a prayer in a video that we could watch you and Charlotte praying for us and just like watch it over and over again to know that you're praying for us. And I thought, yep, I can do that. So we went away and I was like to Charlotte, we have to like have a prayer that's just the gospel, so that they can listen to the gospel over and over again. So we got these verses together and explain what they meant and then put together a prayer. But I just thought, isn't that beautiful? I prayed and asked God for an opportunity to talk about Christ and so soon after, the Lord provided that opportunity. You see, the Lord is more committed to the forward progress of the gospel than we are. He loves to answer our prayers for an opportunity to declare it. And so Paul asks for a prayer to pray for an open opportunity to declare the gospel. But secondly, he goes on, to have another request that I find so encouraging that we read about in verse 4. He goes on, asking for prayer, prayer verse 4, that I might make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Uh, have you ever felt like you've tried to share the gospel with someone and you've just messed it up, like you've just got it all backwards and wrong and, and just been you know, really awkward and nervous? I've often felt that way. Isn't it awesome to know that it's not just us that need divine help to proclaim Jesus clearly, but even the apostle Paul needed it? You know, the wonderful news that is that because Jesus Christ is reigning and risen and ruling, he can help you to proclaim it more clearly. You see, my challenge is often that I talk at people rather than actually listen to them and to know how to speak the gospel Uh, I have a friend, a friend for many years uh, of mine, and he'd been through a lot of hardship in his life. And I remember uh, he shared with me uh, that he basically, his dad was an alcoholic who died when he was 13 from alcohol poisoning, and he'd had to drop out of school uh, in order to work at age 13 to support his family uh, because there was no one else who could do it for his mum managing all the kids. And he said to me, Brendan what did I do that God has chosen to punish me like this? And I just asked God to help me to know what to say to him and just came into my mind, John 9, 3, which is where Jesus and his disciples pass a man born blind. And the disciples asked Jesus, who sinned that this man was born blind? Was it him or his parents? And Jesus says, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. And I said to my friend, look, I believe that what's happened to you isn't because of what you've done or what your parents have done, but I believe it's because God wants you to know Jesus and he wants to display his good works in your life. And I went to share with him the gospel and he just burst into tears and started crying because he'd never heard that before. Now, my friend is still not following Jesus to my knowledge, but I believe God helped me in that moment to proclaim the gospel clearly in a way that he could understand, that connected with his beliefs. See, Paul wants the Colossians to see that the supremacy of Christ in all things means that they ought to embrace his mission to seek and save the lost. So he encourages them to be devoted to prayer, to be steadfast in it, to be watchful and thankful in prayer and to pray for opportunities to declare the word and to do so with clarity. You see, if Christ is reigning, prayer is not wasting time. It's actually probably one of the most important things we can do to be faithful on mission. And that's encouragement number one, to be steadfast in prayer. But not just encouragement one, to be steadfast, encouragement number two, to seize every opportunity for Christ, which we see in verses 5 and 6. And in fact, in seizing every opportunity for Christ, Paul has kind of two smaller encouragements, the first of which is to display Christ with our lives. Uh, Read with me verse 5. Paul says the following He says, Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders. You know, this idea of your walk was kind of a Jewish expression. That was a metaphor for the manner of your life, how you went about your life. Just as you kind of go about your life, walking from place to place, you know, one spot to another, uh, walk is a symbol of how you live. And so Paul is saying, live your life in a way that's wise with regards to those that don't know Christ. But hang on a second, what does, he, what does that even mean? Like, what does it mean? What does he mean by being wise towards unbelievers? It's like just like being really shrewd or something like that. Actually, Paul's been talking about wisdom a lot in Colossians, and it has a special meaning to him in Colossians. You see, to Paul, wisdom, that is how to navigate your life, is found in Jesus. Uh, Paul says this in Colossians chapter 2, verse 3, speaking of Jesus, he says, Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. See when Paul talks about walking in wisdom towards unbelievers he means wisdom that comes from knowing Christ wisdom that comes from his example wisdom that comes from his presence by the holy spirit wisdom that comes from his word the word of Christ dwelling within he doesn't mean just develop great strategies and and street smarts he means living dependent on Jesus you know, James, the brother of Jesus, describes this kind of wisdom that Paul desires for the Colossians when he writes the following in James chapter 3, verse 17. He says this, But the wisdom that's from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. See, living a life in dependence on Christ creates this kind of wisdom that you can't find anywhere in the world and that's so compelling to those that don't know Jesus. You know, kind of right now, I've just got like the first presidential, US presidential debate in my mind, you know, ringing my ears. They, they said it was a knife fight, you know, just like two old men shouting at each other. And in so many ways, people laugh at it, but it represents the spirit of our age, especially on social media, where people just, shout at one another and disagree with one another. But the wisdom of Christ is so different. It's gentleness and it's grace that's found nowhere else. Paul goes on and he says, not just not just talking about walking in wisdom towards outsiders, but making the best use of the time. You know, if you have an older translation of the Bible, they tend to translate this word as redeeming the time. It's actually the same word that was used Uh, to describe the false magicians in Daniel chapter 2, verse 8, who try to buy some extra time in order to stop King Nebuchadnezzar from executing them. What Paul means is making the best use of time. Paul means treating the time we have left as a precious commodity. You know, the truth is, we don't know how much time we have left to preach Christ to those around us. The truth is, we don't know how much time we have left till Christ calls us home. The truth is, we don't know how much time we have left till Christ calls them. The truth is, we don't have, well, we don't know how much time we have until Christ returns. Could be today, could be tomorrow, could be next year, could be 10 years. We don't know. All we know is that it's never been closer. so Paul is saying, arrange your life in such a way as to maximize your ability to display Christ to those around you. You know, here's the truth. It's so easy to live as though we have all the time in the world with our friends and our family and our neighbors, our colleagues who don't know Christ. The question I've been thinking about is what would it look like to radically walk in wisdom towards unbelievers and to make the best use of the time? I was just thinking about it, you know, just kind of spitball and thinking about some ideas of what that could look like to radically make the best use of the time. I was thinking, like, maybe it would mean, like, moving as close as possible to our church community and even sacrificing, owning a home not because there's something more godly about living in these suburbs, but for the sake of your neighbors. So that it's as easy as possible to bring them into our church community. Maybe it would look like setting aside some time each week to invest into those around you who don't know Christ, even though you have little in common and it's not even your preference. Maybe it means just like joining a community group in and around us like the SES or it could be a soccer club or anything just to meet and love and pray for people in this neighbourhood who don't know Christ. I mean, maybe it would be something radical, even even like working part-time instead of full-time just for the sake of time that you can sow into people in our community who don't know Christ. Maybe it's even like finding the most difficult person in your office or at your school or in your mom's group and seeking to befriend them and to bless them for the sake of others knowing Christ. See, Paul is saying, live your life in such a way that if Christ came back tomorrow, you'd have no regrets because you're all in. But not just by walking in wisdom towards those who don't know Christ. Secondly, Paul wants to encourage them to seize every opportunity by declaring Christ with their words as well. Paul says in verse 6, the following, he says, Let your speech always be gracious. seasoned with salt so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Paul says, Let your speech always be gracious. Let everything you say to others be in grace, filled with mercy and filled with kindness, seasoned with salt. You see, in the ancient world, food was seasoned with salt in order to preserve it and to make it taste better. Paul's saying, Make your words appealing to the spiritual appetites of those that are listening. Speak in such a way that you leave them wanting to hear more. See, Paul actually isn't just talking about speaking nicely to everyone all the time just for the sake of it. Actually, Paul here has a very specific situation in mind. See, Paul has been helping the Colossians to see the supremacy of Christ in all things and calling them to join in his mission, the mission of Christ, their mission as well. And so Paul says "Let your words be seasoned with salt, Verse 6b, so that you may know how you ought to answer, or perhaps better, to respond to each person. See, Paul is talking about how to respond to a person who's asking questions about faith in Christ. Notice what he says. He says how to answer each person. Kind of suggests that each person has a different, appropriate way to be answered which makes sense because each person has a different set of hopes that they're putting in, a different set of fears and disappointments, a different set of ways in which the message of Christ speaks into their situation. And we'll only learn these beliefs if we spend time to find out what they are by asking them. See, but what is common in every one of these ways of sharing is that it's gracious that it's kind, that it's seasoned with salt, that it's appetizing. See, the apostle Peter puts it this way in the context of dealing with persecution in the early church. He says this in 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 15, "But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you; yet do it with gentleness." And respect. You know what, if you're anything like me, probably after that, you're probably thinking, Brennan, this sounds a bit too much. I mean, I thought it was tough enough just to share the gospel clearly, let alone in some kind of winsome way, with that kind of wisdom. How is that even possible? Well, friends, we've come full circle back to where we started. You know, James puts it so well in James chapter 1, verse 5, when he says this, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all, without reproach, and it will be given to him. See, we can access the wisdom of Christ simply through prayer, simply through asking God. You know, many of you will know I work as a physiotherapist in and around our community, visiting people in their homes. And I kind of really care about my clients, and I sort of become good friends with many of my clients and I was at the home of one of my really beloved um, clients, who's a very elderly man, and his wife, uh, they all know that I work as a pastor, and his wife asked me uh, one week, she said to me, Brennan, you're not one of those Christians, you know, like those evangelical Christians who believes that I'm going to hell because I don't believe in what you believe, are you? And I kind of went, oh, my goodness, Okay. And I just prayed, Lord, help me to know how to faithfully answer this person. And as I'd been listening to her, like the kind of the subcontext was an experience of rejection she had felt from uh, another Christian. And just when I asked God to help me to just speak clearly and to do it wisely, just John 14:6 came into my head. And so I said to her, "Look, I believe what Jesus says." In John 14:6, when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I believe that Jesus is the only way, but that doesn't mean I reject you. I still care very much about you and your husband, and I really do still count you as friends. And I just believe that God, in that moment, answered my prayer to speak clearly and to do so with gentleness and respect. And that's the beautiful message of the gospel. The beautiful message of the gospel for all of us is that Christ is with us. You know, Maybe you're listening online or maybe you're sitting here this morning and you don't know the Lord Jesus. The message of the gospel is that God made everything in this world. He made us. He put the breath that exists in our lungs. He made it all and he made us to know him and enjoy him. And yet we turned our backs on God and we rejected him. And this world is broken. And for so many of us, we spend our lives trying somehow to make good of them. Even if we don't believe in God, we live our lives so often trying to give purpose and meaning to our lives by the things we do. And if we're honest with ourselves in our quiet moments, we know that we're not the people we should be. We fail to live up to our own expectations, let alone those of a holy and righteous God. And yet the message of the gospel is that despite our failings, God, filled with love for the people he'd made, sent his son, the Lord Jesus, to suffer in agony a place-taking death that we deserved, that through his life and death and simple faith in him, we can come to know God. Not because we're good enough, but because we are not. And that's not just a beautiful message for anyone who doesn't know the Lord Jesus. It's also a beautiful message for us who are called to be on his mission as well. Because the truth is that if Christ is ruling and reigning at the right hand of God, if Christ is working in our lives For salvation, if salvation is all a work of His from beginning to end, if Christ is present in and through the power of the Holy Spirit, His mission is not even ours. We simply get to be a part of it. And more, He is with us and He will help us. Well, friends, living in wealthy, post Christian North Shore Sydney, It's so easy to be discouraged about mission. The rising feeling of antagonism, the 93% of people in our neighbourhood at least that are not following Christ. And so Paul is out to encourage us about the supremacy of Christ in mission. To encourage us to be steadfast in prayer, to devote ourselves to prayer for the lost, to have our eyes open to the moment that we're in and hearts filled with thankfulness towards God to pray for opportunities to declare the gospel and to speak with clarity, and also to encourage us to seize every opportunity, every opportunity to display Christ with our lives as we walk in his wisdom, and to declare Christ with our words as we speak with wisdom and grace. Friends, would the supremacy of Christ in all things lead us to embrace Christ's mission to seek and save the lost? Would you join with me in praying? Lord Jesus, yet again, as we hear from your word, we're reminded that in so many ways, we're not the people that we ought to be. Lord, in so many ways, when it comes to your mission, your work in this world, we forget. And our lives are so easily filled with our own concerns and cares. And yet, Lord, how wonderful to know that you don't leave us like that, Lord. You don't look at us and tsk, 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 but you are filled with mercy and compassion and grace. And so you sent Christ to come for us, to redeem us, to wash us afresh, to fill us with your Holy Spirit and to send us out not because you need us but because you love us and you want us to experience the joy of being part of your work in the world. Help us to remember that, Lord. Help us to remember Christ on the throne and the plight of those that don't know him. And help us to be a people constantly on our hands and knees in prayer, asking for your grace and moving towards every person, seizing every opportunity in love to make much of you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.